So the reading this morning is taken from the book of Joel, and it's chapter 1 and the first 11 verses of chapter 2, and that can be found on page 864. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders, listen all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children, and let your children tell it to their children, and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great, great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine. Wail because of the new wine, for it has, it has been snatched from your lips. A nation has invaded my land, a mighty army without number. It has the teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. Mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the betrothed of her youth. Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are in mourning those who minister before the Lord. The fields are ruined, the ground is dried up, the grain is destroyed, the new wine is dried up, the olive oil fails. Despair, you farmers, well, you vine growers, grieve for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine is dried up and the fig tree is withered. The pomegranate, the palm and the apple tree, all the trees of the field are dried up. Surely the people's joy is withered away. Put on sackcloth, you priests, and mourn. Well, you who minister before the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before my God. For the grain offerings and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. To elders and all who live in the land, to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. Alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Has not the food been cut off before our very eyes? joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seeds are shriveled beneath the clods, the storehouses are in ruins, the granaries have been broken down for the grain has dried up. How the cattle moan, the herds mill about because they have no pasture, even the flocks of sheep are suffering. To you, Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures in the wilderness and flames have burned up all the trees of the field. Even the wild animals pant for you, the streams of water have dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures in the wilderness. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in that land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. A, darkness, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, like dawn spreading across the mountains. A large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times nor ever will be in ages to come. Before them fire devours, behind them a flame blazes. Before them the land is like the Garden of Eden, behind them a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. They have the appearance of horses. They gallop along like cavalry. What a noise like that of chariots. They leap over the mountaintops like a crackling fire consuming stubble, like a mighty army drawn up for battle. At the sight of them nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. They all march in line, not swerving from their course. They do not jostle each other. 
Each march is straight ahead. They plunge through defences without breaking ranks. They rush upon the city. They run along the wall. They climb into the houses like thieves. They enter through the windows. Before them, the earth shakes. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon are darkened. And the stars no longer shine. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number. And mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Patricia coming to speak to us this morning. We thank you for your call for her to preach. We thank Thank you you. for her studying, Father, for the skills that you've given her. And thank you that she's willing to share those with us today. And Father, we pray that the words she speaks are your words to us. Holy Spirit, Mm -hmm. would you be stirring our hearts this morning? And may our lives be changed. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Mary. Shakespeare said, A rose by any other name would smell as sweet. So, what's the meaning of your name? Does anybody know the meaning of their name? Would you wish to change it? Is it going to alter your identity if your name was changed? Would you change your name, Mary? Oh, on Christmas time, yes. Yeah. Good point, yeah, good point. Anybody know the name of Christopher? Christopher. Christopher. That sounds very formal. What's your name mean? I knew you'd know your meaning of your name. That's an easy one, that one. Anybody else know the meaning of their name? The Garnpied now knows the meaning of his name because we've heard the first sermon. <laughs> Anybody got any ideas what their names mean? Stephen. Well, I don't know the name meaning of the name Stephen, but I'll take your word for it. Crown. It means crown, is it? Oh, thank you. Thank you. And you put your hand up, lady here. <laughs> Sounds a bit technical. What's the name? Ah, Jacob. It comes from Jacob, the Hebrew. And your name is Jackie. Oh, interesting. I never linked those two male female ones together before. Yes, so anyway, you're starting the three-week series, which is why the reading was so long this morning, because you divided Joel into three sections. You're starting a three-week series in the book of Joel, um, which is not only tricky to find, but it also has an unusual meaning. Because the, I've, in, please in, indulge me, I'm just like the Hebrew, I did a bit of Hebrew at college, and I find that if you have a look at it, it will actually help us understand it better. Um, reading from right to left, Yoel, the Lord is God. The Yo bit is the, um, the tetragrammaton, the, the, what we call Jehovah part of it, and the L at the end is God. And the L bit is the generic word for God that was all over um, Mesopotamia, including um, Israel, it's a generic word for God. So the name Joel actually means the Lord is God, which sounds a little bit, of, I don't know, a bit strange to start off with. We'll come back to that. We'll have a look at it and unpack it a bit later. Now, whenever we start looking at a book, we think to ourselves, don't we, well, who wrote it? Where was it written? When was it written? What's the context of its writing? Um, and we try to glean some information from, from that before we start. 
But Joel is a bit tricky because he doesn't give us very many clues. If you look at the beginning of Micah, for example, there's lots of books in the Old Testament which actually give us a clue to the writing. He talks about the kings that were reigning at the time. So we've got a, a, a chronological handle onto it. Jeremiah does the same. He talks about writing his book, writing his words down um, during the, various, uh, the 11th year of the king Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. Now the only hints that Joel gives us are that he refers to Judah and he refers to Jerusalem and he talks about the temple and he talks about the priestly system. So we can assume that he's working from the southern kingdom of Judah. So we're going to have a look at this book, this, our reading this morning in four sections, looking at the date of the book, the meaning of the locusts, what were they about, the day of the Lord, which is spoken about, and what this means to us today. Now, our starting point is going to be this bit about the temple, because he mentions the temple, and that gives us a tantalizing clue, because obviously the temple was standing at the time. And if we take it was it before the exile or was it after the exile? Because on a, on a, um, if you kind of read, just read it a cursory glance through, you, be, you could be forgiven for thinking, actually, you know, there's going to be uh, happy with his people. So maybe it's going to be before Judah gets taken off by the Babylonians. Hold that thought. Let's look at the evidence in uh, for, um, before the exile. Joel records a coming disaster. He connects the book with other um, pre-exile writings and the enemies in chapter 3 are well known. That's the evidence before. What about evidence after? Um, the destruction of the temple in 586 would then make the, the boundary line for the temple being destroyed. And the next temple to pop up is Zerubbabel's temple which follows on from the reforms of Ezra and Nehemiah. If you remember the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. And that would have been around about 516 BC, so in favour um, of a, of a, of a post-exile writing, we have Joel mentioning the temple, but no king. That in itself is a bit strange. Joel is familiar with the other prophets, but he doesn't accuse the, the, um, his, his hearers of any one specific sin. And it's probably because, well, they know what they've done wrong. If they've been in exile, if they haven't learned their lesson now, they don't understand why God stripped them out of the land, then we've really got a problem. And I think I'm going to come down in favour um, of it being written after exile. We do not have any evidence for this. Some writers say before, some writers say after. I think there's more evidence in favour of a post-exile writing. But because Joel doesn't actually want us, doesn't draw attention to that, we have to look at the text itself for its evidence. We have to let the text speak for itself without any preconceived ideas. He wants it to be a blank, blank canvas first to, to have a look at what he's actually saying. Now let's have a look at the meaning of these locusts, shall we? I'm going to, we're going to have a little look at uh, David Attenborough on a, a YouTube, on an um, uh, iPlayer clip, just for one minute. its entire body weight every day, and a whole swarm can consume literally hundreds of tons of vegetation. They have to keep on moving. The swarm travels with the wind. 
It's the most energy-saving way of flying. Following the flow of wind means that they're always heading toward areas of low pressure, places where wind meets rain and vegetation starts to grow. As they fly, swarms join up with other swarms to form gigantic plagues several billion strong and as much as 40 miles wide. They will consume every edible thing that lies in their path. This is one of planet Earth's greatest spectacles. It's rarely seen on this scale, and it won't last long. Once the food has gone, the steady roar of a billion beating locust wings will once again be replaced by nothing more than the sound of the desert wind. Amazing, isn't it? That was probably filmed in Africa, which um, this, this phenomena is more common in Africa, less so in, in Israel. So what does this disaster look like? Well, it's complete devastation, isn't it? Total destruction. But as the, you, we need to have a look at the consequences for the community, because if there's no crops, then the people cannot bring their worship, they cannot bring their uh, offerings to the temple. So the, the, the function of the temple has been stopped. And the earth is groaning. We read about the earth groaning through sin, don't we, in, in Romans. The earth is groaning, the animals are suffering and dying, and the land dries up because there's no rain. And Joel here is painting the picture of a reversal of the Garden of Eden. And all this means to the Jewish mindset. If you are listening to this, if you're a Jew and listening to this after Joel has penned it, or you're reading it for yourself, this bit about the Garden of Eden is really going to strike a chord. He mentions this in chapter, chapter 2, verse 3. Ahead of them, the land lies as beautiful as the Garden of Eden. That's the locusts. Ahead of the locusts is the Garden of Eden. Behind them is nothing but desolation. Not one thing escapes. And he would also, Joe would also expect his, his hearers to understand about the locusts in Egypt as intransigence. Because he wanted God to be seen as the, as the power over the gods of Egypt. That's really important when we consider the meaning of the name Joel. We'll come back to that later. In chapter 1, Joel also makes mention of the, um, the symbols of, God, of, of Israel's prosperity. He wanted them to have a lot of food and enjoy the product of the land. He wanted the land to be um, fruitful and provide for them. And I think it's significant. He only mentioned six. The seventh one is missing. So it's a kind of not the, the, the loss of perfection. He mentions wheat and barley and grapes and figs and olives and pomegranates. The fruit has failed through lack of water, but the grains have been completely stripped by the locusts. And the fact that both grains are present together would indicate potentially that it was um, late spring when both crops are ready for harvest. That the land is suffering is a really important theme in the Bible. You've got to have ears like um, jo uh, Joel's listeners the land is a really important theme because God gave the land to his people and now the land is suffering. Um, it's also endorsed, the, what also endorses a post-exile reading is because the people were not thrown out of the land. 
They were thrown out of the land before the exile, but they're not, they haven't been thrown out now. All the land does now is to hatch locusts, which is really, really serious. There's a spine-tingling section of scripture in 1 Kings 8. Um, I want you to imagine that Solomon is delivering a speech at the beginning of the dedication of the temple. This comes from 1 Kings 8. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel, spread out his hands towards heaven and said, Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. Another reference to the fact that the heavenlies were worshipped by the other nations. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants, who continue wholeheartedly in your way, when your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy because they have sinned against you, and when they turn back to you and give praise to your name, praying and making supplication to you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people, Israel, and bring them back to, you, to the land you gave, you gave to their ancestors. When the heavens are shut up and there's no rain because your people have sinned against you, and when they pray towards this place and give praise to your name and turn from their sin because of you have afflicted them, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. Teach them the right way to live. Send rain on the land you give your people for an inheritance. When famine or plague come to the land or blight or mildew or locusts or grasshoppers or when an enemy besieges them in any of their cities, whatever disease or disaster may come and when a prayer or plea is made by anyone among your people Israel, being aware of the afflictions of their own hearts and spreading out their hands towards this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Forgive and act. Deal with anyone according to all that they do, since you know their hearts, for you alone know every human heart. So they will fear you all the time they live in the land you gave your ancestors. It's quite chilling, isn't it? Because it was a bit of a prophecy of what was to come. And it wasn't, can't have been easy. But I think that Joel's listeners and readers would have remembered that. They knew, particularly if it's post-exile, which we're suggesting it is, it's because of Ezra and Nehemiah's reforms, because they would have read the word out loud and reminded themselves of, of their commitment to God. Idol worship had become common practice. Sacrifice, child sacrifice, was carried out in the Valley of Hinnom outside Jerusalem. The practices of the surrounding nations were being copied. And if you do some research, I did some research from my dissertation at college on idol worship and pagan worship in Israel. And there isn't really a break. They never actually totally were dedicated to God completely. There were pockets of time, pockets of different people at various times. But they never really got their head around worshipping him totally. I would recommend that you... Um, you watch on television, on iPlayer, there's a program by um, Simon Seabag Montefiore called Jerusalem. And I know that it's in three episodes. I know episode one has only got a couple of days to go. Um, but it's a really good one because it gives you the foundations of, I think it's called City of Holiness. It's really good information about, about, um, about Jerusalem. You'll find it interesting and helpful. And my other recommendation whilst I'm here giving an advert um, is the Bible Project. Now, for my part of my homework today, I listened to a sermon that was preached here on the 18th of August, and it was a lady whose name I don't remember. Is she here today? Um, she preached on the prophets, 
and she showed you the Bible Project video on prophets, yes? Um, so I would recommend that you go home and have a look at the Bible Project video on, on Joel, because it is really good, really helpful, and it will add to what I'm saying t- this morning as well, give you a bit more background. 1 Kings 9 goes on to say that any punishment from God will come because the people will have disobeyed him, and as, as Solomon puts it, embraced other gods. This other God thing is really important in the Bible, really significant. It's also significant with the name of Joel. Joel doesn't then, he doesn't, we now realize he doesn't have to explain to the people what's gone wrong. We, we, don't have, we don't have a king announced because if there wasn't one, there wasn't one, but if there was one, then it's because the, the, the country has become lawless. There's no control of the country, no leadership. And I think he has a blank canvas because it would dilute his message that society has broken down. God has been disobeyed. His people have been disobedient. But who, who is going to lament and wail and cry? Now, isn't that the true of us? Isn't that true of our nation today? The country that Joel was living in was on the brink of collapse, socially, politically, economically, and spiritually. The, socio- the, the social and economic structure cannot survive when there's no food and no temple practice. Politically, without a king, it's rudderless. But spiritually, without God, all of the above apply. Now, Joel uses the day of the Lord as a theme. It is a theme in other books. Amos mentions it. Um, and he mentions it to start off with in chapter 1, verse 15. But he significantly bookends um, Joel chapter 2, verse 1, with Joel, I should go start this way with you, shouldn't I? You're looking the way around. Joel chapter 2, verse 1, with chapter 2, verse 11, the end of our passage today. They're both, you've got the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, and the bit in the middle, he talks about um, the destruction and the, the awesomeness. When God acts, how awesome, amazing it is. It is as if the, country, the area has been attacked by locusts. That's what he, the illustration he's using, obviously. Who can possibly survive this awesome day of the Lord? The day of the Lord is referred to by other prophets, and it's a time when God's going to do something. The book of Joel is mainly poetic, but he makes good use of this, this drama through the, the drama of poetry. This is what's going to happen if you don't repent. And if, strangely enough, he uses the illustration of the shape of the, the locust head to look like a horse. I, didn't, I was thought about putting the two together on the picture, but I think we get the idea, don't we? He thinks that the horse's head is a bit similar to a locust's head. So what does this mean for us today? I'd like us to have, a, um, I think, a, you know, a, a good time to reflect and think about what this can mean to us today. It all sounds depressingly familiar, doesn't it? We live in difficult days with our society reflecting much that we see in this short, punchy little book. Society has broken down. God has been disobeyed. We look around at the things we see, don't we? And um, I was horrified. My, my son-in-law recently um, went off shopping with his friend and they're learning um, another European language and they thought they'd go and shopping and practice a European language um, and they went off together and in the shop they were sworn at by somebody expletive foreigners 
Um, I've got a friend of mine who works um, not in this area, but she um, she was saying that the, she works as she's a social worker, and she was saying that the some of the it's quite common for the women that she deals with to spend their money on themselves, having their nails done, whatever, and leaving the children short of food, nothing to eat, because that's the they're, they're so driven to wanting to look after themselves that the, the, the problem is massive with the children getting money to buy food. Um, and she had to um, remove a child where the, the mother was on drugs, so she had to actually take a child out of hospital uh, when it was a day old because the mother was on drugs. You know, it's, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. We could talk ad nauseum about all the issues that are going on. We know only too well the issues that are, are going on and how sad it is. But who is going to lament and wail and cry? Is this not the cry of Joel? It's the job of the church. It's our job now to take that on board. The Bible says, who's going to stand in the gap? Who is going to stand in the gap? And I don't know about you, but it's far too easy to have compassion fatigue isn't it? You know, one more word of Brexit and we turn the television off. One more word of, of um, street crime in London and other cities, knife crime. And we think, oh, let's just switch it off. Let's just go and amuse ourselves with something and, and distract ourselves. Let's put the kettle on, have a cup of tea and forget about it. Before we can address this issue, we do need to have a look at our own life. We need to have a look at the choices that we're making we need to repent of compassion fatigue because God wants us to be his eyes and ears to hear what's going on in the world. There's one thing we read in the Bible, we learn about from reading the Bible, that human nature has a propensity to sin. I can remember the first time I, I read the whole Bible all the way through. And you get stuck in the middle where you get these kings, they don't do right, they do right, they don't do right, and you, 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 there's a Decay of society. And, oh, you know, you, you, you want to get excited about the fact that God wants to give the land to these people and they keep messing up, they keep messing up. Why did that have to happen? And then you realize actually we're no better. We're in the same boat. We just, we're all, we're all in danger of turning our back on God. We're all in danger of picking up idols of our own. I'm going to take um, a group from our church to the British Museum in a few weeks' time. And um, the, I've called it um, Faith in Ten Objects. I'm going to have a look at a few objects and have a look at see how they relate to our faith. Um, and um, I had a really funny moment. I was asking the God to show me if it was right for me to do this or not, thinking uh, I'm going to have to sell this to my church. And, you know, going to a different church where it's, no one knows you, because no one knows me here, um, it is almost easier than actually selling something in your own church when they know you, you know, from day dot. Um, anyway, I, th I said to a friend of mine, we went to visit an exhibition at the British Museum last year. I said, do you mind if you're a guinea pig for one of my talks? Just one object. Said, yeah, go for it, Tricia. Just so we came up this cabinet, and I'd done some homework, and there are books you can buy off the shelf, and there are tours that you have to pay for. I'm doing this for free. Just saying. And this cabinet here was here, and there's a, you've got this box and a stone thing there, and there's a group of people, where about where you are, looking the other way, looking at a cabinet. And um, I started talking, I said, well, this is the Royal Game of Ur. It was found um, in the um, uh, excavations that were done around Ur, where Abraham came from, and it's the precursor to Backman, 
and did my spiel from memory. I said, it's really exciting because it was squashed, they rebuilt it, and it's so beautiful. The stone next to it is a translation of how you play the game. And you can actually, by this time, these people had turned around and were listening to me. I said, you can go on YouTube, and there's a guy called Irving Finkel. You couldn't make that name up, could you? Irving Finkel. And he actually, um, he, his job, when he was a little lad, he went to the British Museum and said, I want to work here. And his job is translating cuneiform tablets. They have about a quarter of a million of them in the museum. I was going to keep him going a long time. Now, Irving Finkel looks like something out of Harry Potter. He looks like, you know, you need to... Tr trust me, I'm not exaggerating. You look him up on YouTube. Um, he looks like something out of Harry Potter. And he invited a young lad to come and play this game with him in the museum one night. And it was just... All the lights are out, down, you know, just got the, the light on the table where they're working, and they play this game. And it's just brilliant. Anyway, these people turn around, and they said... Um, so, I, so you, you just touring, he said, yeah, and I realised that the guy who was heading up this little tour here was the author of one of the books I'd just read. So I'm thinking, oh my goodness, this is, you know, I thought, yeah, actually, we are going to have a look at this. We are going to see, um, we are going to go to the museum and have a look and see what these artefacts there that can help us unpack our faith and help us just point us in the right direction to say, actually, these things do exist you know, Abraham did come from the Chaldeans. God lifted him out of a community that were worshipping the sun, the moon, particularly Nana, the moon god, the moon and the stars. They actually worshipped them. They gave, um, they gave their um, sacrifices to appease the gods. The gods would smile on them. It's completely different to how we should consider our god today. Our god made us, designed us. And the, the creation story is written, if you, I had my, my eyes opened um, a couple of years ago, when you, you look at, if you look at the creation story, which the young people are going to be looking at over the next few weeks, you look at it polemically, and you say, actually, this was written in defense of the nations around having their own stories. And in the British Museum, there are um, creation tablets, and creation stories, and it all comes out of chaos, war, aggression. And it all comes out of, let's appease the gods, we have to give stuff to the gods to calm them down. Actually, the creation story in, in our Bible is, was written to refute that. There's no chaos, there's order, there's planning. God made us with a purpose. It's written to refute that argument. And it's something that we need to address. Are we leaning on idols of our own making? What are the idols of our world? It may be our own understanding. We live in a world where information is power. We must resist the desire to seek information for its own sake. Proverbs 3 says, Trust in the law with all your heart and lean not onto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. We must repent of times we've leaned on anything other than God. Do you mean to say that Christians lean on other, th other things other than God? Well, yes, we're not immune. As I said, we're not immune to sin. You know, we could be in danger of entertaining ourselves to death. What television do we watch? Do we control our, our food and drink budget in terms of, obviously there are high days and holidays, I'm not saying that we shouldn't celebrate, but do we look to food and drink and give it a place in our life it shouldn't have? I mean, there's also the dangers of gambling and pornography, domestic violence and bullying and corruption. We're not immune from, from, from this sort of behaviour. 
We need to have clean hands and a pure heart. And then we are called to stand in the gap and intercede for our nation, intercede for our community. I think it's true. We went, my husband and I went to Foldy Brennan a few years ago, and they are making it a policy. Has anybody else been to Foldy Brennan? Um, it's in Wales, in, in, uh, off the Pembrokeshire coast. And they are making it a strategy to pray. And it, uh, it comes in praying as they see, praying into the land, praying for prosperity in their community, but also doing this evangelistically as well. They go and pray for the farmers, pray for the land, pray over the flocks, pray that, that God will bless them. That's part of our job, to stand in the gap for our nation, stand in the gap for our communities. Joel only has to stand up and people will say, that's Joel, that name means the Lord is God. And now I'm hoping that you look at the word Joel differently. Because it means the Lord is God. It means that Jehovah, that tetragrammaton, the, the four letters that the Jews don't pronounce, they usually say, they either say Adonai or, they sometimes say um, God, but they'll say Adonai or Hashem, the name. Jehovah is God. There is no other. Do you get the difference? That's just saying, God is saying, there is no other God. One God only. He is the Lord God above everything. He created the moon, the stars, the earth, us. He created us to bring him glory. He created the moon and the stars for us not to worship them, but to say, wow, isn't our God amazing? Isn't our God amazing? He wants us heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're to have no gods before him. We're to keep short accounts with each other, and we're to weep for our nation. Spoiler alert. If you come back next week and the week after, you're going to hear some good news. And we just need to pray for our community. We need to pray the, Lord, the day of the Lord does turn out to be good news, those who repent. For those who are not in a good place with God, the day of the Lord is bad news. And one day there's going to be a new Garden of Eden. God's promised a new earth and a new heaven. But what about Jesus coming down from heaven? What about the new earth and the new heaven meeting each other and Jesus walking on this earth in a new Garden of Eden? And we'll be with him. But Jesus offers forgiveness to those who turn and repent. Is anybody here today who does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour? Does anybody here not know the good news of Jesus Christ? Jesus loves you dearly and died for you. And gave his life for you. So that you might live. If you don't know Jesus Christ today, then please come and speak to myself afterwards or somebody you know. And say, how can I be sure? How can I be sure? And if you've got issues with idols, whatever they may be, come and speak to somebody you trust and say, what can I do to lay down these idols? I want God to have the upper hand. I want him to have the, loud, the, the loudest shout in my life. I'm struggling with X, Y, Z. Or what am I doing wrong? 
and we will, we will pray for you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So I'd just like to um, have a time of reflection and prayer. If you'd like to close your eyes. If anybody does want to rededicate their life to God and say, I want to go on with God. I want to go on with you, Lord, in a, in a new way. Would you just look at me, please, and look up and I can pray for you. If anybody wants to recommit their life to the Lord, or actually, actually say, I really want to know if I'm a Christian, I want that certainty in my heart that I'm a Christian. Just look at me and I'll, I can pray for you. Father, we pray that you forgive us for the idols that we're holding on to. We know that the Israelites had tangible gods that they would have in their home. What is it that we're holding on to that actually we need to let go of? If we can't, we cannot hold up clean hands. We cannot hold our palms up before you if we're holding on to stuff. What is it that you're calling us to let go of, Lord? What is it that you're calling us to let go of? God takes sin seriously and he wants us to follow him with everything we have. We give you our heart, Lord. We give you everything we have, our soul, our intellect and our physical strength. We give to you, Lord, as an act of worship. Please forgive us for the things that we hold on to. Please forgive us for the, the entertainment that we seek when we have compassion fatigue. Forgive us for the things we spend our money on that may be better spent elsewhere. Forgive us the times, Lord, when we're just adrenaline junkies and we want a bit of escapism. Forgive us, Lord, when we do not have your compassion to be prepared to wail and to weep and to mourn the situation in our country, in our community. We cry out to you, Lord. We cry out to you, Father. Have your way amongst us. Have your way amongst us. We pray for the infilling of the Holy Spirit. We pray that you will anoint us this day with your power from on high so that we will be different. We will go away from this place today less likely to sin. We know that sinning will always be a part of our life from, the, from now to the time we die. But with your help, with your spirit, we are less likely to we pray that this book of Joel will teach us over the next couple of weeks and then on into the rest of our life what it is for you to be our Lord God and to have nothing, to have nothing in our life above you. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.